Most of us would affirm that we ought to pray. Prayer is a good thing, an important thing, a needful thing. We would recognize that we pray to reorient our lives to the glory of God. We pray so that we might grow in our relationship with God, that we pray that we might demonstrate our trust and our confidence in God. We would recognize, I think most of us, that we pray because God tells us to pray. And when God tells us to do something, we think it's usually a good idea to do it. We also pray because prayer is powerful, because it's effective, because it accomplishes things. So we would all probably, or at least most of us, recognize that prayer is important and prayer is something that we should do. But the question we have in front of us here, specifically in Luke chapter 11, is how to pray. How should we pray? And so we see this text from the Lord Jesus Christ. And there might be a subheading in your Bible above chapter 11 that says the Lord's Prayer. That's true. It is the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that he taught his disciples. It could just as accurately be called the disciples' prayer. This is what he taught them to do and how he taught them to pray. And since we who follow the Lord Jesus Christ today, who have turned by faith and are trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, are all his disciples, this prayer is also for us So this isn't just an antiquated template of a prayer 2,000 years ago, but this is a pattern for our prayer even today. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to have, I'm going to have three main points. And I'll just go ahead and give you the whole outline right now. Three main points. So you're spacing out your page. I know what it's like to be, okay, I'm going to take notes, but how long is each point going to be? Three main points. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the final point if that helps you out in your spacing. Within, this is where it gets tricky, all right, but you're the second service. You're a little more awake probably than the first service. Here's where it gets tricky. Under the third point, which is where we'll camp out, we're gonna have two subpoints. Ooh. And now real tricky, under the second subpoint, we're gonna have three points. Okay? So three main points. Under the last main point, we're going to have two subpoints, and under the last one of those, we're going to have three subpoints, all right, or sub sub points, all right. And if you are thoroughly confused, that's all right. Just listen and follow along in Scripture as we go through this. Our first main point this morning is the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer, or more specifically, what is the purpose of the Lord's prayer? First, let's notice what the Lord's Prayer is not. The Lord's Prayer is not a magical incantation. And yes, I said incantation from the pulpit. It is not a set of magical words that we recite in which there is somehow mystical power that unlocks kind of a secret level within the will of God and gives us that which we pray. The Lord's Prayer is not a magical incantation that we just tack on at the end of our regular prayer that somehow supercharges all that we have just prayed for, that God somehow now says, oh, wait a minute, oh, you're using the Lord's Prayer. Okay, we're gonna move you into first class and we're gonna really give you attention now. 
That's not how the Lord's Prayer works. I mean, there is nothing at all wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. It's good to recite the Lord's Prayer, so long as we realize that these words carry no more or less weight than any other words of Scripture we could use in prayer. So if the Lord's Prayer is not a magical incantation, then what is it? And I think a more helpful way to think about the Lord's Prayer is to understand that the Lord's Prayer is a thematic pattern. It's a thematic pattern. It provides themes for us, and these themes represent a pattern which ought to generally show up in the prayers of Christians. That doesn't mean, for example, that every prayer you pray needs to have all of these thematic elements, which we'll cover in just a little while, or that your prayers have to have at least one of these thematic elements. You may pray a simple prayer that you breathe in a moment of need or a moment of crisis or a moment of trial, and that prayer is just as effective and God listens to that prayer just as much as a prayer that has all of these thematic elements. But it does mean that generally God is giving us through his son this pattern of prayer so that we might utilize these themes. It would be sort of like when the teacher says, pay attention, this is going to be on the exam. Now you can pay attention or not pay attention, but it's to your own benefit that you pay attention because you know this is something that the teacher is self-consciously saying, this is important. So the Lord's Prayer provides these thematic elements for us. It provides for us what our pattern ought to look like when we pray. That's the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. Which brings us to our second main point, which is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. As chapter 11 opens, Jesus is doing what? He's praying. This should not be surprising to us. Jesus prayed regularly. In fact, if we just limit our scope to the gospel of Luke, we have seen already how Jesus is frequently getting away to pray. And Luke wants to stress to us over and over again just how important and just how regular Jesus was as he would frequently go to the Father again and again and again and again in prayer. For example, let me just give you some examples. Luke reminds us in chapter 3, verse 21, that at Jesus' baptism, he was praying. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, we're told that before Jesus called his 12 apostles, he spent all night long praying. In chapter 5, verse 16, Luke tells us that Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. And then in chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, this section that Jason referred to earlier in his prayer, Jesus takes Peter and James and John and he goes up on the mountain and he prays. And it's while he's praying that he's transfigured, that his appearance changes and his glory is seen. And then later, Jesus is going to send out the 72. And you remember, as those 72 ambassadors of the kingdom of God come back to him and report about all the things that the Lord has done through them, Jesus' immediate response is to pray. And he thanks the Father for all the ways that the Father has chosen to use these 72 ambassadors. You see, Jesus regularly 
pray. It was a characteristic of his life to get away often and spend time praying. In fact, this this could be why his disciples asked him how to pray. I mean, it's likely they would have already known how to pray, but they see something different in Jesus' prayers. Perhaps it's the fervency with which Jesus prays. Perhaps it's the regularity with which Jesus prays. Perhaps it's the familiarity Jesus has with the Father when he prays. But for whatever reason, the disciples see something different, something unique, something powerful in Jesus' prayers, and they ask him to teach them how to pray the same. The point is that they recognized that prayer was something they could learn to do. It was something that Jesus could teach them, which I think is important. I mean, do we think about prayer like that? As in a skill or an ability that can be learned, that can be improved upon? Like We can learn to pray. We can learn to pray better. And by better, I don't necessarily mean longer, or with more expressiveness, or with greater eloquence. None of those in and of themselves are markers of faithful prayer. In fact, the marks of faithful prayer are regular prayer, honest prayer, God-glorifying prayer, prayer that is in alignment with Scripture, prayer that trusts God our Father, persevering, Prayer. I mean, these are all things that the Bible uses to describe what faithful prayer looks like. In fact, in Matthew's kind of parallel account of the Lord's Prayer here in Luke, Matthew kind of gives us a longer version of Jesus' teaching about prayer. And he ends with things, warn, he essentially warns us of things that might seem to us to be markers of faithful prayer or someone who can pray well. And Jesus actually warns his followers to not do those things. Just look at this. And Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. Is Jesus saying that we should never pray in public? No. Jesus himself prayed in public. Jesus called his followers to pray in public. The book of Acts is filled with the church praying in public. The warning here, though, is a matter of motivation. It's a matter of the heart. Don't just pray to be seen. Don't pray to impress other people. When you pray, don't try to string together a bunch of big words to to show off to other people or to try to show off to God. But when you pray, pray to the Father from the heart. And there's a danger 
There's a danger in one of the elements that we have in our Sunday morning time of worship together, and that is the, there's a danger in the pastoral prayer, which is the, the prayer that's one of the centerpieces of our time together. It's a prayer that's, that we pray together. One of our pastor elders lead us. This morning, Jason led us in that prayer. It's um, sadly by probably North American evangelical worship service standards. It's a long prayer. It's usually eight to 10 minutes. And we pray for needs in the church. We pray for needs around the world. We thank God for his answers to prayer. We pray for other churches. We pray for forgiveness of our sin. We pray that God would would give us grace and strength to follow him and to rejoice in him. We pray for the work of the kingdom to advance. We pray for lots and lots of things. But one of the dangers in that prayer time is that we who listen would think to ourselves, wow, I could never pray like that. And so we don't pray. That it would somehow discourage us from prayer. So let me just give you the reason and and maybe some things that will be helpful for you even as you hear and and are led and we are led in prayer each and every week during the pastoral prayer time. We, We believe that there's value in that prayer time. We believe that that prayer time is important, that it's powerful. We recognize that we're probably outside the norm of many churches in North America. We realize that if you're not used to praying for a while, that can maybe be a distraction at times. Or if you're trying to keep little ones quiet, it could at times be a distraction. And we don't mind at all the sounds of little ones in our services. But keep in mind as we are led in prayer by one of our pastor elders on Sunday morning, and if it seems a bit eloquent, keep in mind a few things. For one, these are pastors and elders. These by definition, should be mature Christians who have prayed for a long time and who pray regularly. Doesn't necessarily mean that if you've prayed for a long time or pray regularly that you become eloquent in prayer. Because remember, eloquence is not a mark of faithful prayer. But it means with more experience, there's more opportunity to learn and to grow. Keep also in mind that our pastor elders spend time all week long preparing to lead us in that prayer. We're preparing to, to stand before the flock and to speak on behalf of the flock to God and to speak to God or to speak to the flock on, on God's behalf. They're prepared to represent us as a church family before the throne of grace. So there's oftentimes notes that these elders have when they're going to pray. And if you were to just follow them through any given week, you would probably recognize that the vast majority of their prayers are not that prepared. They don't all sound that way. So don't be discouraged if you don't pray the same way because our prayers are going to come out very unique, unique to us because we're all very different. For some of us, our prayers are going to be very basic and very simple. For others, they're going to be more expressive because guess what? Some are more expressive than others normally and naturally. So our prayers are going to be varied as we grow and as we learn to pray more and more. And this brings us to our third and final point this morning. We've seen the purpose of prayer and the priority of prayer. Third is the pattern of prayer. The pattern of prayer. Look at verse two. And when you pray, Jesus said, pray this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. In the ancient world, it was commonly believed that prayers should be elaborate and that they should be drawn out. But in contrast, Jesus' prayer here is short and simple and direct. Amen? Amen. Now there are two, remember I said this is our last main point within this, there are going to be two primary points. Our first primary point is this theme that we see here. And the theme is God and his glory. That's the way this prayer begins, with God and his glory. Again, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So our prayers begin and open with the simple word, Father. Yes, in prayer, we are coming into the throne room of the creator God who rules over and sustains all things. But the pattern, get this church, the pattern he gives to us is to call him Father. Not King, not Sovereign One, not Yahweh, but he invites us, church, to call him Father. There's more to this name that we'll get into next week, but the name fatherhood itself connotes love and compassion and authority. Maybe your father here in this life wasn't so great. Maybe he didn't convey those things or represent those things. Maybe you think very different things when you hear the name father. And this is where we need to be reminded that Our Father in heaven is the great Father. He is the pattern. And if your earthly father was not any of these things or was only some of these things, recognize that there is a perfect Father in whom we are called to pray to and called to trust and beckoned into his presence because he wants to spend time with us. And so we pray to our Father, which acknowledges both his love and his authority. And to call God our Father was dramatically different than how the pagans in the ancient world would pray. The pagans in the ancient world would pray long prayers, and most of their prayer would simply be trying to get the attention of their God. A great example of this is Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in the Old Testament. You remember Elijah's on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of Baal are trying to demonstrate that their God is the true God. And they're trying to get his attention. They're trying to call down fire. And so they pray these long prayers and they dance around and they begin to cut themselves. They're trying to get his attention. They're trying to get all of his names just right in the right order, in the right way that God, their God, lowercase g, might somehow respond to them. You remember Elijah has some fun with that and says, maybe you need to call louder. Maybe your God's distracted right now. He's, maybe, maybe he's going to the bathroom right now. Yes, it's actually what he says. But our God is not like that. We are invited to call him Father and we are instantly brought into the throne room of grace. Not pastors, not just leaders, 
not those who have walked with the Lord for a long time, but all of God's children brought into the presence of this creator and the sustainer of all things with the very simple word, Father. While we are on this theme of God and his glory, notice also that Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And probably most of you use the word hallowed in your vocabulary regularly, but for the few of us who don't, are wondering what in the world does Hallowed mean? It sounds like Halloween. Is that what we're asking God about? Is something related to Halloween? Hallowed means to reverence as holy. It means to acknowledge as holy. And so we are to pray that God's name, that God's identity, that his reputation is honored as holy. Another way of saying this would be to say that in our prayers, we are to pray that God would be acknowledged as God. That he would be embraced for who he is by virtue of his identity. If we do this maybe sometimes in our own lives in other sorts of ways. For example, perhaps you maybe you have an old friend, maybe from high school or college, or someone that you have a, a deep abiding relationship with, and you love this person and you admire this person, and then they come to town and you want to introduce them to all of your new friends who don't know this person. And so the words that you use, the things that you say are going to convey that your desire is that all of these new friends would come to love and know and appreciate your old friend for who they truly are. Like, they're so great. Wait till you meet them. You need to get to know them. Take my word for it. And that's what we're praying. When we're praying, God, hallowed be your name. God, would you be seen and savored for the God that you are, for the God that I have come to know and experience you to be, for the God that your word declares you to be. God, I want more and more people to see you for who you are. I want more and more people to rightly love you and worship you and adore you. That's what we pray when we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Beginning in our own hearts. God, may I see you more clearly. May I come to love you more fully. May I begin to see more and more and more of who you are and what it means that you are God. And as God's people, we should desire that God's glory be celebrated by more and more people. I mean, this is what Jesus himself prays when he prays in John 12, 18, when he said, Father, glorify your name. One more theme here while we're on this theme of God and his glory. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. He also teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God means God's active rule and reign over his creation through his people, the church. God's active rule and reign over his creation through his people, the church. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, there's an element in which we are praying for the kingdom to come in all of its fullness and all of its glory, which we know will only happen one day when Jesus returns. 
and all things are made new, and his kingdom truly arrives in all of its fullness. But we also know that throughout Jesus' ministry, he said things like, if you see these miracles that I am doing, it is evidence that the kingdom of God has come close. Or he would go out and he would preach, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or the kingdom of God is near. Or the kingdom of God is here. So we know that the kingdom of God has begun in the life and ministry and work and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that ultimately when Jesus returns, he will bring it to fruition and fulfillment. So that means now as the people of God, our prayer and our desire is that God's kingdom would grow that it would come, that it would expand, that his active rule and reign over his creation through his church would increase. Meaning that we pray that the church would flourish and God's people would multiply, that more and more people would hallow God's name and honor him and worship him all across the globe. So here's a question. You don't have to answer this out loud. How often do you pray for God and his glory? How often do you pray that God's kingdom would come? I'll admit, I don't pray that way enough. I long to pray that way more. I would pray more that that God's work would go out, that God's work would continue, that God's will would be done that more and more people both here in Dayton and around the globe would come to see and savor the beauty of God for who he is and the glory and the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ for all who repent and believe. We pray for God and his glory and for his kingdom to come. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for the Steigers in Senegal or the Yulbergs in Bolivia, or our other missionaries. We're praying that through them, the message of the gospel would be proclaimed and declared, and that through the proclamation of the gospel, God would transform hearts, and that people would respond by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and that through that, the kingdom reign of God would go out to the nations. And we pray the very same thing when we pray for the Dayton Gospel Mission, or No Longer Strangers, or the Miami Valley Women's Center, we are praying that through these local ministries, the gospel would go out and God's kingdom would come, that God's name would be hallowed, that there would be more and more people, young and old alike, who begin to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God. The point is that our prayers ought to be marked and even opened by our longing that God's glory be seen and his name be honored. It doesn't mean that every prayer has to, has to follow that same template, but it means that ought to be a theme in our prayers. Our prayers should have a kingdomness to them, where we don't just ask for specific things but where we stop and we acknowledge God's bigness and his kingdom mission and we ask that God would accomplish his mission on earth as it is in heaven, even using us. That's the first theme. The second theme that we see in prayer, remember this is point three, A and B, right? Now we're on B. We saw God in his glory. Now, Notice the second theme in this prayer is humanity and our need. Humanity and our need. Give us 
each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And as promised, maybe only serving to confuse you further, there are three subpoints that we'll end this on. The first is provision. Notice the pattern. We are called to pray for provision. For God to provide for our daily needs. Give us each day our daily bread. Theologian David Garland writes, we are to ask for provisions for the bare necessities to sustain life. And we offer our prayer to God in humble recognition that without his gracious provision, we go without I mean, you might remember how in the Old Testament, God provided over and over again food for the Israelites as they traveled about. And then later, we're going to see in Luke chapter 12, Jesus encouraging us and reminding us that we should not fear because God will provide what we need. And so we pray and we ask God to provide what is necessary for our daily lives, knowing that we depend on him for everything. Knowing that we are not self-sufficient. Moms and dads, this is a really good opportunity for you to disciple your children around the dinner table. When you bow your heads to pray, you thank God for the food that he has provided. It's a great opportunity to show over time and through repetition to your children that we are, we are grateful that God has provided this for us. Lest we think that the provision comes through dad or mom's job that provided the money to buy the food. We can take them back and see that even the opportunity to have the job and the relationships that allowed the connectivity to have the job and the skills God has provided to get the job and the ability and the energy and the strength and the physical uh, power to go and actually do the work, all of those things come from God, that we are not self-sustained. That just because maybe perhaps we are in an income bracket or a part of the world where we don't have to pray each and every day, give us this day our daily bread, having no idea where it'll come from, we are no less dependent upon the hand of God. And boy, if, if we've learned anything from the last two years with COVID, we have learned that, that our lives are so fragile and so frail and that each and every moment we depend on the gracious provision of God in all things. And in case we think that that sort of dependence is a sign of weakness, friends, dependence on God is actually a mark of spiritual maturity. We are called repeatedly in Scripture to depend on him, to trust in him, just like God taught the Israelites to depend on him daily. I think it's amazing. I just got done reading this a few weeks ago in my Bible reading plan. Maybe you were kind of there as well. God reminds Israel of the reason that he both caused them to hunger and then provided manna and why he only provided enough manna for one day. And it was, he says, so that they would learn to rely on him, that they would learn that they do not live on bread alone, but they live according to the precious promises of God. Oh, that we may learn that we do not live on bread alone, but by the precious promises of God in all things. The second thing that we learn here that we see patterned in this prayer regarding humanity and our need is not just provision, but it's also pardon. 
pardon. Again, look at verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Pardon is a noun, which means the action of forgiving or being forgiven of an error or an offense. Jesus teaches us that rather than making excuses for our sin, rather than hiding from God because of our sin, we are to seek forgiveness from God in our sin. And while we know that repentance is the initial response to God transforming our heart and opening our heart and opening our eyes to salvation, and we know that turning from the sin, chiefly the sin of unbelief, to belief is our response to the gracious saving work of God, we also know and even see clearly here that ongoing forgiveness is the lifestyle, is the pattern of the Christian. We are called to ask for forgiveness when we sin. And we need this forgiveness, not to sustain us in our relationship with God as though somehow if we don't ask for forgiveness, we somehow kind of slide out of the kingdom. But we need it so that we might experience the joy and fellowship of being a son or a daughter of Yahweh. I mean, this is why David, after all, in Psalm 51 which is his prayer of repentance to God after his sin with Bathsheba. He prays in Psalm 51, asking God to forgive him and for God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. We need this forgiveness. We need this joy because forgiveness pulls us back into relational intimacy with the God who saves us. It should be a regular part of our lives as Christians. God forgive me, knowing, celebrating that there is full and free and rich and deep forgiveness through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper together. We're celebrating that forgiveness. In the 5th century, Augustine actually used this verse in his debates with Pelagius, a little church history Walked down this road for 60 seconds. Pelagius taught that there was, uh, there was for, for people who are following Jesus a point at which you would sin no longer and it was possible to not need forgiveness any longer that you could be completely forgiven and no longer need the forgiveness of the Lord, that you wouldn't sin anymore. And Augustine uh, frequently pointed out with some degree of sarcasm at times How in the world do you respond to the Lord's Prayer, which is clearly a call for us to seek forgiveness from the Lord when we have sinned against him, and which is true. And since the Lord forgives us our sin, we are now called to forgive those who have sinned against us. As we have been forgiven, we are called now to forgive. It's the same pattern. Which brings us then to our final theme here in understanding humanity and our need. And that is for protection. We pray for provision, we pray for pardon, we pray for protection. Jesus said, and when you pray, pray and lead us not into temptation. The word here, tested, can also be used This might seem like an odd thing to pray, especially since in James chapter 1 verse 3, we read that God does not tempt anyone. 
Like, well, wait a minute. If God doesn't tempt anyone, James 1, then why would Jesus teach us to pray to the Father that he would not lead us into temptation? And the best way to understand this is by understanding that we're talking about two different categories here. Pastor and theologian Tom Schreiner writes helpfully here, I think, what James has in mind, remember James is the one that says the Lord does not tempt anyone. What James has in mind is the notion of the Lord luring us into sin, laying a trap for us with the intention that we will sin. And James clarifies that this will never happen, that all sin comes from our own desires and inclinations. James 1, 14 and 15. But here in the sermon, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus exhorts us to pray, since God is the sovereign king, that we would be kept from situations in which we would sin. That especially we would be guarded from committing apostasy. The Lord would keep us from falling away from him, from turning our back on him. So this is a prayer that the Lord would keep us from situations where we would sin. That he would, according to his word, provide the way out of, of temptation, just as he has promised. And this prayer is, is humbling then because it reveals just how vulnerable we are, doesn't it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's what we're praying. When we pray and lead us not into temptation, take my heart and seal it. Because I know how weak I am. I know how prone to wander I am. I know how easily tempted I can be. And this is the opposite of Peter's response in Luke 22, which we'll get to in like 10 years probably. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 33, you can go read it later, Jesus cautions Peter and he tells Peter, hey, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat and I have prayed for you. And Peter's response to that, tragically, is essentially, bring it on, Satan. Which is not the proper response. By contrast here, Jesus is teaching us that we are frail, that we are dependent. That we are prone to fall. And when we do fall, we know that there is grace and there is mercy. And the full forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are also called to pray that the Lord would guard us, that he would protect us, that he would keep us. So, recapping now, we've seen the purpose of this prayer. We've seen the priority of prayer. We've seen the pattern of prayer. What is left for us as Christians is to give ourselves to prayer. You cannot have a healthy relationship with someone that you rarely communicate with, right? And so I would just encourage you even to use this pattern, this very simple, this very basic pattern, even this week in your prayer. If you're wondering, where do I start? Or how do I grow? Spend time reflecting on the glory of God and his kingdom principles. Pray that God's name would be hallowed. Reflect on the fact that God invites us to call him Father. Thank him for that. Praise him for that. Pray that more and more people would come to see and celebrate and savor the fact that he is God. And then pray to God for our provision daily, regularly. God, provide for us. Pray for pardon 
Forgive me, God, for this. Knowing that there is grace and joy in forgiveness. And pray for God's protection. God, guard me, protect me, seal me, not only for your courts above, not only for the day of a full salvation to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, but help me even now. Guard me. Help me to rightly steward the full armor of God that I can faithfully walk with you. You see, prayer is not merely a grown-up's version of a child's Christmas list. It is a prayer that God's glory would be seen and his kingdom would be celebrated. Prayer is humbly asking God for everything we need, knowing we are weak and dependent. Prayer is acknowledging that we must decrease, that the Lord must increase. Prayer is responding in love, friends, to our gracious heavenly Father who saves and nurtures us. So let's pray together.